Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus as we consider continue our study in viewing this church through spiritual eyes. When we have those spiritual eyes, trust that we find our identity in Christ, in Christ alone as we have sung, and that that is our focus. I had the privilege this last week of speaking at a youth camp in Wisconsin, Camp Joy. I took a red-eye flight after the Sunday evening service last week. I flew out, and so I could be there for the week. And I uh, had a great opportunity. I really enjoyed the opportunity of preaching and then observing the, the working of the leadership, the counselors, and, and to see the heart of the young people. Uh, it was a, an enjoyable week. The kids were receptive to the truth. Uh, it, it was really a, a blessing. And in talking with the counselors, we got talking about the, the different types of camps and commented on how, well, this was a teen camp that sometimes you look forward to junior camp weeks uh, because the schedule's a little bit different and they usually have an earlier bedtime on junior camp weeks. And there are a number of other differences, but I, I, I remembered back to having served as a camp counselor, working at camp before, and... and Junior camps were a lot of fun. Uh, there's a different dynamic. The teen camps are a lot of fun as well. But junior camps, you know, I did notice one thing in particular when I was a counselor of junior boys that they didn't seem to be nearly as concerned about taking showers or changing clothes that the teens did. And, you know, as a counselor, I wanted to make sure then that my, my campers were involved in water activities every day. And so whether that meant we were tubing down a creek or going to the lake to go swimming or walking under a waterfall, uh, soap and shampoo may not have been involved, uh, but at least water was. Uh, we at least got them through the rinse cycle, if nothing else. And, you know, when it came to changing clothes, that was a different story. I really didn't pay that close of attention to what the junior boys were wearing. Uh, but I was concerned about how they went home. And, you know, I know that sometimes mom packs the suitcase before they go to camp, and I didn't want that suitcase going back looking just like mom had packed it. And so one of the fun games that we would play in our cabin was to see who could find an article of clothing of a certain color. I'd call out the color, and they had to see who could be the fastest one to hold it up for me. And, and so it was a lot of fun. It built cabin unity, and it also made the suitcase look a little bit different than when it arrived. Now, I, I'm sure that the counselors today are much more concerned about hygiene for the junior campers than I was. So I'm sure that doesn't happen, and they make sure the kids have washed behind their ears and brushed their teeth and flossed every day. And so, moms, you don't have to worry about that. But my hope was when the kids returned home, at least mom would have a, some level of peace of mind that their counselor had been concerned about them. And I was. I made sure they got wet every day. Um, but, you know, I wasn't always sure if they were changing clothes and junior boys. That wasn't always a big deal. But, you know, the picture of changing clothes is actually the picture that is used here in Ephesians. 
of changing garments, the garments of our attitudes and actions, that when we come to Christ, when we come for salvation, it's not merely a rearranging of the furniture or the suitcase. It's a radical change. It's a change of clothes that takes place. In fact, the, that is the visual picture that is used here in Ephesians chapter 4. That there is a difference that comes. It's intentional. It's a deliberate difference. But understand that the change that takes place at salvation is more radical than the change that takes place at death. Because at salvation, a person goes from death to life. They go from the family of Satan to the family of God. When we are saved, we, we are radically changed. There is a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship. There's a new power, a totally new perception. There's a new understanding, a new love, a new righteousness, a new desire, and a new citizenship. All of that comes at salvation. So salvation is not simply a home renovation project. It is a total transformation. And what I want us to understand and see from this passage is that our new life will result in a new lifestyle. That your, the change of nature that comes demands a change of behavior. That, that as Dr. Ending, when he was reading Scripture, as he was introducing Philippians to us, mentioned that right living comes from a right perspective. And that's what we're going to see in this, this passage. Knowing Christ will change your life. And what I want us to see this morning is that genuine salvation requires a spiritual change by breaking away from the sinful patterns of our old life before we were saved and replacing the patterns with Christ-likeness through the renewal of our mind. That's what we find in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 4, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 17. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all unclean, uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, Concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would apply it personally to see how we need to change and grow to be like Christ. Lord, we pray that as we consider this aspect that we would understand that, that the change comes as we focus on Jesus Christ, as we run to him, that we would be Christ-like. Work in our hearts through your word, and we'll give you the praise. Amen. The analogy that's being used in these verses is that of putting off a garment, of removing something that is dirty, that is worn out, that is old, and then putting on a new garment. 
But what we find in the center of this is that it happens with a change of thinking, a change of relationship. See, not only does this passage describe the change that takes place at salvation, it also provides a clear pattern for us that we need to have in mind for the process of sanctification. How do I change and grow? How do I, how do I be like Jesus? And, and un, as we understand that, it helps us to put on what will please God. You know, from the time we come to Christ as, as He is our personal Savior till the time we go home to be with Him, God is at work to change us. As we read in Philippians, that, that He's continuing that work. That it's going to happen until the day of Christ. That God is working. That God has a goal. And that goal for every one of us is that we would be like Jesus. That we would change. Because God planned this from before the foundations of the world. And, and as we considered the doctrine in the first three chapters, we saw this was God's plan that, that we are saved not by works that we would do lest we would boast, but we are His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works that have already been prepared for us that we should walk in them. That's what we saw back in chapter 2, verse 10. So God has a path for us. So when we came to verse, chapter 4, we saw the, the doctrine now being put into practice in how we walk. The first section was we're to walk in unity. That's verses 1 through 16, and we've considered those. Now when we read verse 17, we find that second statement of how we're to walk, and we're seeing in these verses through the end of the chapter, we're to walk in holiness. And it's, it's the negative contrast that's presented first, that we no longer walk like the rest of the spiritual Gentiles, like the unsaved, so that we will show that change. So the first thing I want us to see in this passage is that we have to remove the characteristics of the old life that was alienated from God. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're, you're no longer a, a Jew or a Gentile. What we've seen is we're one body, we're a new creation, we're the church, the bride of Christ. We're Christians, Christ followers. And if you're a Christ follower, then you shouldn't live like the unsaved live. We can't conduct ourselves the way that they do. There ought to be a change. Now, if a person is unwilling to yield to Christ, they really need to examine whether they are in the faith. That doesn't mean that Christians don't, don't struggle. I had one of those conversations with a camper this past week. They said, you know, I've, I've really struggled to surrender to the Lord, but, but he's worked in my heart this week. But that's the difference between a Christian and an unsafe person. A Christian has that struggle, but understands what Christ has done. An unsafe person will, will not surrender. They're going to dig in their heels. And if, if you've trusted him, then you're to put off the, the patterns of the old life, those old garments, the fruit of the, the corrupt tree. And the roots of that corruption were in the wrong way of thinking. And so the characteristics of that are mentioned in this passage. The thinking process is what resulted in the behavioral process. Well, there's, there are some general statements of the thinking of the unsaved. The first one is that they are out of touch with, with reality. Their thinking is ineffective. It says in verse 17, they, they are, they're walking in the futility of their mind, the futility or vanity. It, it, it speaks of that which is empty. 
aimless. There's, there's an absurdity or a lack of purpose. The idea is that an unsafe person lacks the moral perception, the proper moral disposition to reason righteously. Now, in our culture, in our country, for many years there was a basic Judeo-Christian foundation. So there was, I, I believe under common grace, there was an understanding of some of that. But we see that disappearing very quickly. I mean, when, when, when I'm at camp and the camp director and I are, are talking to the young people about what the Bible says about being a man and a woman and gender, it's like, who, th who would think you have to address that? But when you hear what's going on in our culture and you think, how can they not see this? read an article just this week of, of a female swimmer who was speaking out against this man who claims to be a woman so he can compete in women's swimming events. And she talked about, first of all, just the, the unfairness physically because of the advantage that men generally have more upper body strength and lung, lung capacity. I mean, that's, that's science. Trust the science, our culture says us. Yeah, they don't do it. Why? Because they, there's a futility in their mind. And she talked about that, and then she talked about the discomfort of having to change in a girl's locker room having an anatomical male present. And you think, how can a culture and the people who are supposed to be protecting women and advocating for women's rights and women's sports and Title IX not see it? I mean, how can they not get it? This is it. They're out of touch with reality. It's not an intellectual problem. It's the ineffectiveness of the futility of their mind. Their thinking is like a bubble. And it might look really smooth and shiny if the sun hits it just right, but if you pop it, it has no substance. They're out of touch with reality because they've rejected the authority of God. They've embraced a godless, atheistic culture and philosophy, and it leads to spiritual darkness. In fact, the... Uh, a similar passage to this is in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1 verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then further down in verse 21 it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile, vain in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. So what we see, first of all, is there's an ineffectiveness in their thinking, but secondly, they are blind to the truth. They're ignorant. And this isn't, this isn't a statement of, of their GPA, or, but, but it's a statement of unable to see the truth, having their understanding darkened because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So the clever, sophisticated ideas and minds of our modern world that boast of their intellect are blinded by the effects of sin. The, the effect of sin on the mind of every unbeliever is that there is a darkness. And, and, it's, and it's not an issue of intellect. It's like trying to see through the fog. As we were driving to the airport, I had to get up early yesterday to fly, fly back. We were flying out of Chicago. As we're driving, I, I noticed the fog hanging over the fields. And it, it, was, it was really a very picturesque scene because the fog was high enough that you could see under it. But if you've ever had to drive in fog, 
That is not a fun thing to do. And especially if it's dark. Where you can't even turn on your lights, you have to use the parking lights because if you turn on the other lights, it's just, it's blinding you. Well, what's the problem? The problem is not a, a lack of ability to see. The problem is the fog. And, and, a, and a scientific mind might be able to describe fog better than, than a fifth grader. But neither can see any better because the problem is not the intellect. It's the blindness is in them. And that's what this is telling us. They, they are alienated from the life of God, God who is the truth, and, and understanding, our culture says, well, truth, you know, you can have your truth and I can have my truth. No, truth is what God would say or has said about any topic. So truth is what God has said or what God would say. And so therefore, we seek to know the mind of Christ to know the truth. But, but this idea, well, and, and their response of this ignorance is due to their rejection of the truth. This is what Romans 1 tells us, verse 19. It states that that which may be known of God and is manifest in them or evident among them has, has, and has been there since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes are clearly seen and understood that all things are made even as eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. I mean, if you've seen any of the pictures recently from, from the, the telescope that has just come out, the Webb telescope, and to see the amazing pictures. And it's again the declaration, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And to think, well, somehow this just happened. That, it, that, no, that something came out of nothing. That life came out of non-life. That simp, simple life forms somehow begat complex life forms. How can you think that? You have to reject the knowledge of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, so they are without excuse. Because the heavens show, the creation shows the eternal power and deity, that there is a God. And so there really is a culpable ignorance in the unsaved. They have rejected the truth. And that denial is obvious. Evolution is the faith system of the, about origins for the religion of humanism. And, and humanism bows down at the altar of the image of man. It worships the perishable man rather than the creator, the eternal God. That's what Romans 1, 23 tells us. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they worship the created being rather than the eternal God. So they're without excuse. Or John 3, 19 tells us they're under judgment because the light came into the world and, and people love the darkness rather than the light. So understanding that not only is an unsaved person out of touch with reality and blind to the truth, but the third thing that we see is there's a moral rebellion. There's morally rebellious. They're insensitive. This is verse 19. It says, Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to depravity. There's, there's an active suppression of the truth that is often closely connected with moral depravity. You know, when, when you read the claims of those who have consistently rejected Christ on a, quote, philosophical grounds, if you dig into their lives, and often in, in 
through history you see this, there are pockets of unrepentant sin. I mean, you can read the lives of, of authors like Hemingway and Huxley and, and read of their lifestyle. They reject God and then read of what's going on in their life. There's a re moral rebelliousness. Of Rousseau, the, the father of the Enlightenment. And yet he gave his, he, when his children were born, he would drop them off at a hospital so he didn't have to raise them. And having children with, with multiple women. There was a moral rebelliousness. You know, you hear stories from time to time about young people who lose their faith when they go to college. And many times that rejection of the truth comes around the time of involvement in a lot of other sin. Because they're finding a, a philosophical system that justifies sin. And there are others who when they fall into sin, that's when they turn to Christ. They run to the one who can deliver them. But Romans tells us in Romans 1.24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. And then it talks about, goes on and talks about what we see in our culture today so clearly. Or as John 3.19 says, They love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Their works were wicked. See, their past feeling, there's a spiritual insensitivity. And folks, that is a serious problem. That's why when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we need to respond. Don't push it off. Don't, don't say, well, I'll take care of that some other time. No, you want to stay sensitive. And if you say, well, you know, sin doesn't really bother me. I don't see anything wrong with it. The real question is, should it bother you? What does God say? Is that a sin for which Christ died that you are saying isn't a big deal? And if so, then it says more about you than the issue. In fact, the end of Romans talks about those who not only do these sins, but those who give support to them. That invites God's judgment. That's why we have to be sensitive. To enjoy sin, you have to harden your heart. A soft heart, a sensitive spirit does not enjoy sin. And that's why we see that their, their past feeling, their ignorance is linked to their sin and God has given them over to the debased behavior that they will gladly pursue. It's a reminder, there's enough wickedness in the hearts of every one of us that if God wants to judge us, all he has to do is let us go our own way. And, and, and he said, I will give them over and they said, we want that. And he gave them over to behavior that they ran after. So never be spiritually or morally ap apathetic. The fourth thing that we see, though, is they are motivated by sensuality. We see that at the end of, of verse 19. To work all uncleanness with greediness. There's, a, there's this unrestrained desire for sensuality. The moral apathy and insensitivity leads to moral bankruptcy. And we see it in our culture. They have no shame about things that truly are shameful. Now, when we are ashamed, we sang, we can run to Christ. He delivers us. And we're going to talk about that in a few moments of our identity. But they have no shame because they are greedy to practice all kinds of uncleanness and, 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 and lewdness with that greediness. This is the debased mind that Romans one twenty eight speaks of. 
They, they're feeling controlled. They're pleasure-oriented rather than faith-based and principle-oriented. The sinful attitudes and actions of the unsaved are rooted in a thinking style that is, that is ineffective, ignorant, insensitive, and indecent. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Therefore, we have to be on guard. But for a believer, we have a different way of thinking that results in a change of life. We're not just rummaging around the suitcase and moving things and holding up different colors. There's a change of thinking that results in a change of attitudes and actions. We have to put off the dirty clothes of the unsaved life. And then the second thing that we do is we renew our inner person by consistently learning of Christ. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Or as it says in verse 20, you have not so learned Christ. And and the idea here is much more than simply having religious thoughts. It's the embracing of the person of Christ. I I think if if I were to pick a key word out of this section that describes the, the life before Christ, without Christ, it's that word alienated in verse 18. They are, they are alienated. They're not part of this. Now the, the change comes as we learn. So you've not learned Christ. It, it's, more than, it's more than a study of the life of Christ. It's that personal relationship. Folks, we can have an intellectual knowledge about Jesus, but do we truly know him? Where do we seek our identity? In the book, How People Change by uh, Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp, they point out that there are two realities that exist for every Christian. One is that we all have the way that we instinctively think, feel, act, and want to respond to life. We all have that. And number two is that our ultimate purpose is to become like Christ and live with him forever. That's God's plan. We have our way, he has his, and that's where sometimes that struggle comes. And in Christ, we receive the cleansing from sin, the new power for spiritual life. We've been given new clothes, his robes for my tattered garments, that that he bore my sin that I might receive his righteousness. Because even my best deeds, my righteousness is like filthy rags. So do we find our identity in Jesus? No, this is where the struggle comes for all of us in our, our, our battle with sin, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and he saved sinners by dying for sinners to save us from sin, not to save us to continue to sin. And so Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid. See, when Jesus is our Savior, he saves, he's here to save us from our sin. Do we think that way? Or to say, you know, this sin has messed up my life and, and I, I, don't, I feel bad about it. Do, we, do you view Jesus as your Savior or your therapist? I mean, what do we come to him for? Do we want comfort or do we want change? Do we, do we see our problems as a failure to worship and serve the, the Creator or do we see it more as my needs aren't being met? What are we pursuing? Are, is, it, is it godliness or good feelings? Happiness or holiness? Because we all have an agenda. And that's where I have to submit my plan to his plan, which is that I would be like Christ. And to be like Christ means God's going to bring things into our lives that we, we would rather not have because they're uncomfortable. 
but it's because he sees the end game in a way that we don't. You know, we all have our agenda. Is it God's agenda? J.C. Ryle said this, would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? Then you must begin with Christ. You will do nothing at all and make no progress till you feel your sin and weakness and flee to him. He is the root and beginning of all holiness. And the way to be holy is to come to him by faith and be joined to him. So I asked Pastor Dave, Let's, can we sing, I run to Christ? You have to flee to him. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. Are you drinking and eating consistently? And we have to, we can't miss this step because it's so easy in our Christian circles, in our, in our conservative Christian circles, to say, okay, I shouldn't do these things, I need to do these, and we miss this step. And we fall into moralism. We fall into legalism. We come up with our list of do's and don'ts and think, well, this will please God and it will certainly please others. And then I can judge everybody else's spirituality. And the question is, how are you doing in your identity with Christ? Because that's what we have to have. We have to renew our inner person by consistently learning Him, being taught by Him, of hearing, of, of understanding the truth of Jesus so that, number three, we replace the old pattern of sin with new life characteristics. Your new life creation is the result of a divine activity. That's what we see here. You put on the new man created according to God in true holiness. That you no longer walk back in verse in verse 17 the last half that that is the statement that brings us to this so you're new you are a new creation and it's the result of God's working it's divine activity in your life created according to God he gives us the power the resources for change you know we don't bring anything to this relationship that helps us you know, there, there have been a number of times in doing uh, premarital counseling that a co couple will come together and, and as I start talking with them and finding about their, their backgrounds and, and all, one of them is very fiscally careful and the other is not. And, and on more than one occasion, I've talked to couples where one of them is coming and they're bringing a significant amount of debt to that relationship. In fact, I, 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 one time I actually threatened to not even perform the wedding because I was, I, he was bringing so much debt and I thought this marriage is headed for trouble right from the get-go. Because finance is one of the key, main, five main issues that are a problem in marriage. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really nervous. Now, thankfully, they both really got focused and they paid off a great amount of that. She had a good job and they paid off a good amount of that debt before they ever got married and I did do the ceremony. But I was concerned. Because I thought, you know, one's bringing debt, and, and for that person, this is a great relationship. Because <laughs> the other's bringing something to pay it off. It's like, well, this is good for one. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, I really love her. Of course you do. You saw her checking account. <laughs> do you know what I brought to the relationship with the bride of Christ? All I brought was debt. I brought a debt that I could never pay. And Christ took my debt and gave me his righteousness. He paid my debt that I might receive his righteousness. That's the work of God. It's not anything that we deserve. But it's all that we can do because it, even the best I did still had me in the negative numbers. 
and understand this is divine activity. Secondly, you're a new creation will display Christ-likeness and characteristics. When you are born again, when you are a new creature, then you're to display Christ-likeness. He who's begun that good work will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so he's striving that we would be molded in true righteousness and holiness, as it says in this passage. So this is why I ask, do we find our identity in Jesus? We have to think properly. You know, do you, do, you find, do you define yourselves in terms of your relationship with Christ or with your struggle with sin? You know, do you define yourself as a depressed person or as a Christian who struggles with depression? Are you an angry person, person controlled by rage, or are you a Christ follower who's struggling in this area? Where's your identity? Is your identity in your marital problems, your marital status? Or do you see yourself as part of the bride of Christ and you're accepted in the beloved and there's some issues that have to be worked through? Because the remainder of this chapter is going to get very specific about how you put off certain things and put other things on in the change of thinking. So you put away lying. You speak the truth to your neighbor. How do you do that? We're members one of another. Why would you lie to yourself? But you see that pattern taking place here. Is your identity in Christ. This was Paul's prayer back in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, that, that they would know the love of Christ, which is beyond comprehension. He said, keep your focus on Jesus. So when you face financial problems, job difficulties, health problems, do you understand Christ is working in your life? that God is at work to conform you to the image of Jesus. And he works all things together for good. What is that good? That we would be conformed to the image of his son. God has that plan. My problem is I have my agenda, and my agenda doesn't really have pain very high on the list. I don't want that. I want comfort. I, 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 I like those things. And so what I have to say is, but what I want most of all is to be like Jesus. And when we look at ourselves, what is it that drives us? When we struggle with the same sin over and over, can we say, I have hope of victory because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And he who has begun a good work will continue to perform it until the day of Christ. When you deal with those problems to say, Lord, I want to be faithful, I want to grow, help me learn through this, mold me through this. Now, what do you see when you look at yourself? Because that will determine your hope and what drives you to your actions. When we considered handling life's problems, I, I, I gave you this graphic of spiritual transformation. It, it helps me to have the visual picture, to see the transformation process, to see the list on the, on the left side of the sinful patterns that have to be put off. And it begins in our thinking. How am I thinking? Am I thinking biblically? We need, to, we need to talk to ourselves properly. I have to put on the right kind of thinking. There's behavior that I have to put off and put on. But all of that happens as I change my mind, as I think differently, that God is at work, that I am learning Christ, I'm hearing Him. So I'm moving from deceit to truth by the renewing of the mind. That I go from, from that sinfulness to Christ-likeness, the deceit of sin 
the, the lust of the heart to the will of God. And so on, on the one side, you've got the lust of, of the heart and our heart desires. The other is the truth of God and what he's doing. And ultimately, I have to say, do I really want God's will? Because if I do, then I'm going to walk differently than the world does because they want to be happy too. They want to be healthy, wealthy, wise. And, and so what are they pursuing that's any different than what we're pursuing if we don't put Christ-likeness at the forefront? Is that your desire? And so the deceit of sinfulness is the lust of the heart. The, the truth of God's will is that Christ-likeness. So do you desire to live consistently? How are you doing in living for the Lord? Does your life consistently evidence that you are growing and learning Jesus Christ? That is a radical change. It's the transforming power of the new birth. You can't do this in your power. If you haven't trusted Christ, none of us can do this in our own strength because all we're bringing to that relationship is the debt. We're just rummaging around in our suitcase and holding up bright, shiny pieces of clothing. We need to discard that suitcase and receive his ropes. We need to run to Christ when chased by sin. But how are we doing? Does your service at church as we come together reflect a devotion to Christ or is it merely checking a duty box? You know, do, you, do you love the Son and say, Lord, that, that is what ex excites me is to serve you. See, Christian change is not about a system. It's about salvation. It's about the person. It, it's not a system of works. It's, here's what Christ has done. It begins at justification. It ends at glorification. And that time in the middle is where we're living when we know Christ. It's our sanctification. Put off, put on, because we've changed our way of thinking. We're learning Jesus. We're hearing him. We're, we're in his word, and it's not a checklist. It's a person. And that's why I don't want us to miss, because it's so easy to say, okay, I shouldn't do this, I should do this. You're not going to do it unless you think differently about who he is. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. So right now, if you're saved, you're on that path of sanctification. How are you doing? How are you doing in learning Christ? And if you haven't learned him, if you haven't come to Christ, you can today. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. If there's that prompting in your heart, you say, Man, I, I'm uncomfortable, that's a sensitivity. That's the Holy Spirit. Would you trust him today? Let's pray together.